0: Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY. Building a better working world.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Budget 2023 is now just days away, with high expectations of a substantial package of measures from government to help households and businesses tackle soaring energy costs. In the second half of the show, Owner Mara Walsh of the Irish Tourism Ministry Confederation will go through the hospitality sector's wish list. First though, I'm joined by Jack Organ Jones of our political staff and our columnist Cliff Taylor to explain the horse trading that's been going on in recent weeks in the run-up to this budget. I began by asking Jack Horgan-Jones to go through some of the big ticket spending measures that he's expecting on Tuesday, particularly ones aimed at businesses.
0: Well, Karen, I was talking to someone uh, earlier on this afternoon about uh, the expectations from business and, and what the government expects to provide for the business sector. And they said the top five priorities are all energy based. So I think that, you know, to a certain extent, we should expect to see the usual concessions or measures on things like research and development, you know, the improvement of the multinational tax offering, the disbursement of the largesse of the Brexit adjustment reserve fund. But really, I think that all the political uh, attention and all the attention from the business community and particularly from uh, smaller businesses will be focused on uh, what the government is going to be doing to help offset or to help backstop the the impact of the energy crisis, which has been seen um, most visibly in the last few weeks through businesses doing something as simple as as sharing their utility bills online as they come in, which became a real thing towards the tail end of the summer as people started to be hit with those bills, and that in turn, in the in the finest traditions of prudent budget policy making, made it a a political hot potato. Once the ministers and once the backbench CDS started getting it in the neck from their constituents uh, and from businesses in their constituency, it jumped the shark from a kind of abstract uh, potential... Concern to something real and concrete that would threaten their popularity, I suppose, in the first instance, but also would kind of uh, sharpen up the potential economic impact of the uh, of the uh, the energy crisis uh, on on Main Street. Um, I remember one person in government talking to me over uh, over the the summer, kind of towards the end of August, and they were saying, you know with the kind of prices that, that small businesses were being faced with they were going to have to start charging 9 and 10 euros for a cappuccino and that just wasn't going to that wasn't going to happen so what you'd see instead would be uh places shuttering um and obviously that would have an impact on on employment there would be an associated impact to an extent on um payroll taxes on a uh, corporation tax to a degree but overall the, the the political vista i think of shuttered businesses when we so recently experienced a relatively strong economic bounce back from uh, the the covid era travails was one that is is deeply politically unpalatable so what i think we've seen um as an adjunct of that, or as a result of that, in the last six or eight weeks, has been a, a, a growth in the expectation of the role that the government will play uh, for businesses post-budget when it comes to confronting the uh, the energy crisis in the first instance, and going back to the very first few weeks of the invasion, there was uh, an intent to assist kind of very large companies, exporters, companies that that, that have a very big energy bill uh, and on a kind of industrial scale with uh, these schemes that were to be given clearance under revised EU state aid rules. And there's been a couple of those in the offing for the last little while. One of them actually has been given approval called the Ukraine Enterprise Crisis Scheme, which is kind of more focused on direct grants or repayable advances, equity or or loans, and that's expected to commence in quarter four of this year. There is a second scheme, which is still uh, running through the approval process in Brussels, as I understand it, which is an emergency response credit guarantee scheme. Um, which would work a little bit like the COVID-19 credit guarantee scheme. But again, we'll be more focused, I think, in the initial conception uh, at the upper end of the market. So what you've seen kind of trucking, trailering in behind those two schemes in the last little while has been ministers and politicians starting to talk about, you know, something that might approximate or might be closer in terms of how it operates to the CRIS scheme, the COVID restriction support scheme that we saw during the pandemic. Now, we don't know exactly, Exactly. The shape and size of that. We don't know even if it's going to be finally ready for budget day. There may just be a, an indication that something will be brought on stream during the late autumn or, or early winter. But I think that the intent is very much there and it's an intent that is is driven by, you know, the the spike in, in gas futures that we saw in late summer and the associated uh, the associated price increases that we've seen since uh, Putin kind of started tightening the gas supply into Europe, which has sent shockwaves through, through the political system and there has been a clear step change uh in the coalition with regard to its intent to to assist businesses in the budget so it will all be it will all be energy focused i suspect on budget day for uh the business sector as well as for households
1: and jack what about the nine percent vat rate that's in place for the hospitality sector it's due to expire at the end of february but obviously the sector has been pushing hard to have it re- retained what's your sense of what's going to happen there
0: I think it's in the balance, to be honest. Like, I mean, the the tradition with this lower rate of VAT has been that, you know, every time they take it out of the box, it's been extraordinarily hard to put it away. I think that it was initially something that was introduced during the the financial crisis, and they couldn't uh, put it back in the box until, you know, I think it was well into confidence and supply. Uh, I think Fianna Fáil, actually, during that period of that government, were consistently advocating for it to to be kept on stream. Because it's something that is very uh, tangible to the hospitality sector in particular, and it's and it's often used as a kind of standard bearer or the the, the chief ask from that sector or from businesses more largely of the government, and um, they. <laughs> they swore this time as they as they swear every time that they weren 't going to extend it, uh, then they extended it, so you know you can 't say that the odds on it being extended again beyond the end of February um, would be that long against that you know it, it 's not seen as something that is particularly fiscally prudent and um, there is long standing opposition to this from within the Department of Finance, and it was the subject of several pointed paragraphs in the re- recent report of the commission on tax and welfare who basically were saying that you know you shouldn't be using this tool we think it's a bad idea and um, so i think i think i think it's very much in the balance i mean uh, trying to intuit exactly which way it's going i was listening to, to derek hileary the uh the new junior minister in the department of enterprise who was asked about it on claire Byrne on wednesday uh, morning and you know it, you, you could you could take you could take signs that it was going either way from what he said. On the one hand, he said, we can't keep going back to VAT. But then he was saying it has served us very well. So I think it's one of those things that'll that'll come down to the wire. I mean, if I had to bet now, just because of the kind of stance the government is taking in terms of, you know, supportiveness and all the rest of it, they'll probably extend it again um, because they always have done previously.
1: Yeah, Cliff Taylor, one of the issues that the government faces is... Um, what, what, what do they introduce as a one-off measure to help people through the worst of this uh, en- spike in energy costs that we're all experiencing? And what do they bake into the spending on a long-term basis, as you would in any normal budget cycle? What's your sense of, of how, they're, how they're going to achieve that balance?
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think what you were talking about there, the 9% VAT rate kind of underlines the issue that you know, once you introduce something or once you introduce a payment, uh, or some kind of special scheme, it can be very hard to to get rid of it, but so I think we 're going to be effectively looking at, uh, at at two different packages next week uh, one is going to be the normal budget fare tax allowances, welfare rates uh, as Jack was saying there various measures aimed at the business sector, the kind of longer term changes permanent changes that we're we 're used to assessing on budget day and looking at how much they give to the normal household, etc et etc. Cetera, et cetera. But added on to that, and I think possibly more politically explosive and interesting and uh, controversial is going to be the once-off package. You know, what, what is the government going to do to help people over this winter, given the extraordinary increase in energy bills, and also help businesses through the winter? Uh, so there's no doubt, I think, that a lot of the energy in the run-ups, the budget has, is going into how to frame that package. And I mean, we were talking of a, of a temporary package, of a once-off package of a billion uh, that would cost a billion euro. Uh, you know, a month or two ago, that's, that went up to two billion, and now there's some talk that it might get close to three billion, and that's in addition to the six point seven billion normal, in, in inverted commas, budget package. Uh, you know, so we mightn't be far off ten billion uh, in total by the time by the time we're finished next Tuesday. So I. I think the plus side for the government is that it has a massive surplus this year. Taxes have been much stronger than expected. So it has the money to spend this year. Uh, There are issues about how it's divided up and how you do it, but it has the money to spend. But the difficulty then is what happens next year if energy prices are still high? Uh, There will certainly then be pressure for more once-off payments so that people aren't worse off next year than they are this year, for example. So politically and economically, it's a very tricky thing to do. But I think the government, you know, governments, the political system tends to get through one, one crisis at a time. And nonetheless, it's going it's to throw out the money. Um, it's going to throw out the money now and hope that things are going to be a bit better next time. I think we will see, as Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath have done in recent budgets, we're going to see money set aside, I think, all right, uh, to deal with things next year, if you know, contingency funds, et etc. et cetera. Uh, But they won't unlikely to be able to throw out the same amount of money again next year as they're going to do next week. So it's difficult.
1: Cliff, uh, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan has ruled out price caps on electricity and gas charges this winter. That's a tool they seem to be using in the UK. Why why are we so opposed to that?
2: I think the the government's so opposed to that because of the risk, uh, the risk to the exchequer. Uh, The problem with introducing a price cap is you've got to pay the energy companies because the energy companies, the energy supply companies, are going to be buying energy then on the market at a price lower than they're selling it on to consumers. So you've got to, you've got to pay the money. We've seen, for example, big payments, uh, big investments in energy companies in Germany and, and France uh, f- for that reason or for the reason of, of pressure on the energy supply sector. Uh, so the real problem with energy caps is the uncertainty about what the cost is going to be to the exchequer. And uh, you know there's a lot of talk in the UK of, of nervousness in the markets about what's going on there. They're guaranteeing prices to households for two winters, not just for one winter, for two winters. Very hard to know how how much that is going to cost. You could get lucky. Wholesale prices could fall back next year, but you could be badly caught if, if wholesale prices rise up. You know, the difficulty then, the flip side of that, I suppose, is, okay, you're throwing money at households. You're giving them a lot of cash through various channels, but the actual energy bills they get are still going to be sky high. So there is an exposure there for households. The energy cap means... That the exposure moves to the state. Not having an energy cap means some of the exposure stays with households, even though they're going to be getting a lot of money in through another door of their financial accounts. If you like,
1: Jack, what about the windfall tax that has been much talked about? Is is that going to happen?
0: It's been one of the great kind of ebbing and flowing uh, items of the pre-budget. Uh, drum roll of, of news and, and at first it kind of seemed like we weren't particularly interested in it because of really big concerns in the Department of Finance around you know how you would effectively target it um, you know would, could you potentially open yourself up to a high court challenge by targeting it too closely and then this this wider concern that is omnipresent. On Marion Street, which is that you know, Ireland, as part of its wider industrial policy, just doesn't mess around with corporation tax. We we wouldn't introduce something that you know only t- only taxed potentially energy companies uh, as opposed to as opposed to other uh, companies more writ large in, in the wider economy because it's just it's a, it's a bad signal and it's certainly something uh, it's a bad thing to do without some kind of forewarning. Uh, they were also. Concerns as well around you know, how it would be structured, how, it would, how quickly it could be brought on, they seemed to be alleviated um, maybe four or five weeks ago, and we seem to be moving towards a space where we'd have a token energy tax, so accepted in principle, but you know, quite tightly targeted and, 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 and only raising perhaps one figure that was, was mooted was around 100 million euros, which obviously in the grand scheme of budgetary arithmetic is, is not enormous. Then the the European Commission stepped in with this kind of suite of proposals, which are are quite dense and I think are are quite poorly understood or or poorly poorly communicated, and I think they're still poorly understood at a governmental level here. But the 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 suggestion was that the the Commission, in recognition of you know the dysfunctioning nature of the energy market. The role that that gas played from a price setting point of view, and the inflated role of the inflated price of gas on the wholesale markets, which hadn't been anticipated when the market was being designed, we're going to effectively come up with a suite of options to, you know, in the short term, help extract some of those revenues rather than waiting for them to fall to 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 the profit line and become taxable. Um, And it all became very confusing very quickly. And I think the tarnista was indicating last week. Even that he didn't have a firm grasp on what Europe was was proposing and what exactly it might mean, there was a suggestion initially that it would mean billions. That then seemed to be uh, seemed to be kind of rolled back to to hundreds of millions. So there's a there's a deal there's a great deal of uncertainty, but it does seem that Ireland in principle supports a kind of pan-European approach or the development of a toolkit on this front uh, rather than going it alone. Um, and and introducing our own domestic windfall tax. The problem that we have here is obviously that the the timeline of developing something in Brussels or developing something at Commission level may not may not tie up with our own domestic timeline and indeed the budget coming coming in just one week's time. So again I think what we may see here is perhaps a a a declaration on budget day of an intent once this is developed or once we have a firmer handle on what can and can't be done with this to do something then. And you asked Cliff a little while ago about, you know, what happens uh in next year when and if Uh, energy bills for businesses and households remain elevated, I think that perhaps that may be when this comes onto the pitch. So not to be too reductive and simplistic about it now, but you you, you spend the surplus in this half of the year and then you hope that you you have a mechanism for extracting those windfall revenues rather than profits come 2023 and you use that maybe to fund um, anything that is needed above and beyond that which is committed or signaled to on budget day.
1: Cliff, have you any better sense of how much Ireland might get from this European Union windfall tax against energy companies? Glad you asked me that
2: question, Kieran. <laughs> I haven't no. Um I was very skeptical about talk of billions that was were going around in political circles there a few weeks ago, which seemed to be based on kind of looking at the amount of money that the uh that that, that was going to be raised across Europe and, and kind of dividing it by what Ireland's share might be. But I don't think that was ever the way this is going to work. Uh, this is tax or charge or whatever way it works out it was only I think is only ever going to be introduced at a national level, if you like, on guidelines set by by Brussels. Um, and I think I suspect the more they're looking at it in Brussels, the more you know problems and issues that are coming up uh, and risks that it might, in fact, affect the supply of energy to Europe, for example, over the winter. Or that it might affect investment in renewables uh, in the years ahead uh, because obviously there's a structure in the market there that was designed to to, uh, to help renewables. I mean if we step back from it for a minute, there is certainly a case to reform the way electricity prices are set um, that they're you know based on, on gas prices and gas prices are now shooting up and I think that is a job of work that the European Commission is, is, is now going to get involved with. Uh, but that's, I think, more like a six six month one year project. In terms of the short term, I I, I think like Jack, this may not land in time for the budget. Uh, you know, in terms of clarity from Brussels on how this might work, I think the next meeting of energy ministers isn't due till after the budget. Um, so it's a little bit messy, I think, from the Irish point of view. And then if you you know if you look at if you look back and say, well, what are they? Where are the windfall profits in the Irish market? You know, we don't have big. Uh, gas at oil companies in Ireland, with the exception of of the people running the corrup oil field, um, you know, is there or gas field, should I say, is, there, you know, is there some special tax that could be levied on that? There's also no doubt that there are large profits being made from wind energy generation at the moment. You know, a little uncertainty about who owns those profits. Are they are they are the wind energy providers or are they the energy suppliers who are buying for them or the, the integrated companies? How exactly do you tax that? Those are the kind of things the European Commission is looking at. So I think we will have some kind of tax, but I think the amount of money that it will raise is probably going to be a good bit less than what's going to be spent in terms of helping households. Yeah, and everybody will have heard last week about how ESB
1: trebled its profits in the first half of this year. So uh, what does the government do about something like that? It's a state-owned company after all.
2: Yeah, the ESB, I think, is is an easy enough one. You know, the government government owns the profits of the ESB and at, at the end of the day and can take it out via dividend. Um, so it probably isn't a you know that that probably isn't a, prob, a you know, a major kind of problematic issue uh, and return it to households that way. Um, I, I think the bigger issue is, you know, to find the kind of real are are there real supernormal profits being made in the Irish market at the moment? And there probably are to some extent. But on the flip side, I think a lot of the energy supply companies are also being squeezed in terms of liquidity, uh, or, or could be squeezed in terms of liquidity. We've seen in other European countries, including smaller countries like Sweden and Finland, money put aside to help energy supply companies with liquidity. Uh, the problem is that they're being asked to put forward you know, much greater amounts of money to secure future supplies. So there could be a squeeze there as well. On the other side of the other side of things. So you know, this isn't a this isn't a straightforward issue. I don't think some energy companies are making a lot of money, others are being squeezed, and we've seen some of the smaller suppliers leave the Irish market uh, over the last six months or so. Yeah, sure. Jack, um, just in terms of individuals, everybody's
1: wondering what it's going to mean for their pocket. What can we expect, let's say, in in terms of welfare measures, in in terms of any um, tax credits or anything for renters, anything for landlords? Can you give us any insight into the government's uh, thinking or what kind of political horse trading is going on in the background?
0: Yes. Well, all of the above, Karen, uh you you'll be happy to hear. Um, so it doesn't seem to be a case of whether uh, they're going to go ahead with uh, cuts or, or increases to payments, cuts to taxes rather, or increases to payments. It's a, it's a question of how much So, to, to take them in, in the order that you presented them. Um, the this idea of a 30% tax rate which was something that was championed in the early part of this year by Leo Varadkar, and then kind of reemerged in an unexpected way uh, in the tax strategy group papers um that i think is is highly unlikely to happen this year it's been there's been significant pushback against this from the other coalition partners who you know have a range of concerns, ranging from you know just how do you do something like this? It's a fairly dramatic intervention. How do you do it at short notice? And you know what about the the quality implications of it? So it's kind of it's on the back seat and and the approach they're going to. They're going to take is, is likely to be a widening of the tax bands. I'm talking to someone senior in government today. They were saying, "Look, nothing is agreed yet." Um, reports elsewhere would suggest that you know uh, the widening approach that has been decided on will mean about an extra five hundred euros uh, per year in the wage packet of someone making fifty thousand euros a year, which is also which will be welcome and I think I think tangible um, for for most people. Um, in addition to that, you're going to see I think uh, to take the the, the budget normal or budget proper pile of money first, the 6.7 billion, you're going to see an increase probably more or less across the board in welfare rates in an effort to not keep up with the, the rate of inflation, but to kind of cushion... Welfare recipients or those on fixed incomes from some of the 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 worst uh, effects of of rampant inflation. So there was this figure of fifteen euros uh, circulated again in the Tax Strategy Group papers, which I understand turned the air blue in the Department of Public Public Expenditure Reform when they see it when they saw it because it was it was so, so big and um, effectively be- it became a target the minute it was used as a kind of worked example. My understanding from you know early on after the publication of the tax strategy group papers was that there was opposition to going that high, and I think that there remains opposition to going that high so you may see something around around ten euros, perhaps a little less on job seekers, perhaps a little more on on some other rates, and you 'll also see i would imagine slipping into the other mode the at the one-off payments you'll see quite significant payments to uh you know the things like the living alone allowance uh the 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 fuel allowance all these kind of targeted measures that can i suppose be more tightly focused in on those who are uh, at extreme risk of deprivation or fuel poverty um, and those are the kind of things that, that that we should expect to see um so you remember again during the summer like a lot of the these these seeds that are sown and become kind of uh, come into full bloom at, at budget time happened during the summer there was one particular daft report that came out and 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 just showed the absolute near absolute absence of of real time um, property b- properties available to rent. Uh, in the open market. And, you know, obviously that's not perfect. It's only a snapshot of what's available at a time, not the wider market, but it is an indicator of something nonetheless. And that started a conversation about what we have to do in the first instance to to help renters who are struggling with the upfront cost of payments. So there is discussion ongoing about the reintroduction of a rental tax credit, which is something that we got used to about about 10 or 15 years ago and then was taken out. But I think more interestingly is also the provision of support for uh for for um the tax treatment of rental income now there are there is a list of options within the tax strategy group papers on this and how it might be done which is as long as your arm and and as complicated as as a very difficult crossword but i suspect they will they will pick some of the measures from that because they're also concerned not just about the upfront cost to generation rent, but also the very real vista of uh, people leaving the market, which I think is supported by, by the headline figures which Cliff has, has, has written about already. So I think that we should expect, you know, this will be a giveaway budget. So there will be giveaways in there, I think, for both uh, landlords and renters and um, workers and welfare recipients in an effort to kind of solve the, uh, the multi-headed policy problem that the government is, is, is facing on all fronts.
1: Cliff, what will they do for house buyers? Because a lot of people out there feel that they just can't buy a house, no matter how hard they save, how hard they try.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to be a focus of. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to be a focus of the budget uh, directly, anyway. There's uh, obviously the the issue with the future of the Help to Buy scheme, uh, which uh, which there's diverse there's diverse views on, but I, I'm sure they'll push ahead with that. Uh, but I, it's hard to see. Specific measures, I guess, uh, aimed at aimed at the aimed at the new house buyer. I think in this budget, I think all the focus is going to be on the on the cost of living, uh, on trying to help households, uh, and I suppose on trying to help, uh, as Jack said, renters uh, via a tax credit, uh, giving them a little bit more money to save if if uh, if they do want to put a deposit down on a on a house. Um, I think one of the key issues for uh, house buyers is actually going to come after the budget when the central bank publishes its two-year review of its mortgage lending rules in probably in November Um, and it's going to be interesting to see whether they've any give any leeway there in terms of the rules under which banks lend Uh, possibly more difficult to do so now with interest rates going up and a squeeze on people's living standards. Finally, Jack, uh, Pascal who will deliver um, the budget next Tuesday. Um,
1: Michael McGrath, Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, will then follow uh, and talk about uh, his side of things, give his budget speech. But they're due to swap roles at the end of this year as part of the coalition agreement with Leo Varadkar becoming Taoiseach and, and Micheál Martin stepping down from that role. But there's been a bit of controversy about that of late because in parallel... Um, Pascal Donoghue is president of the Eurogroup it's a, it's a substantial and influential role and if he loses his uh, position as Minister for Finance then he might not be eligible to be re-elected to that role so Ireland might lose that seat as it were so a suggestion from Leo Varadkar and, and from other quarters as well that, ha- that perhaps Pascal should be allowed to stay on which I don't think has gone down too well with Michael McGrath and those in Fianna Fáil what's going on there?
0: You no, know, it went down very badly, you're right. Um, to, so to start from the beginning, the kind of governing document of this and, and all governments is the Programme for Government and it says that the Taoiseach Roes shall change over. There's nothing actually in there about the role of Minister for Finance but it has been the, the received wisdom uh, that in in a coalition of equals plus the Green Party, uh, it would be too much power concentrated in the offices of, of one party to hold both the Taoiseach's chair and the Minister for Finance position. So uh, as I say, uh, the, the the working theory has been that when the uh, when the Taoiseach and the Tonichta the Taoiseach when the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach swap over, the ministers for finance will swap briefs as well. Um there had been as you say a suggestion that uh, Pascal Donoghue could keep on his Eurogroup role which expires early next year but perhaps could run again for uh for head of the eurogroup uh, so long as he held a treasury function so perhaps as as Minister for public expenditure and reform and and again if you look at the kind of governing documents for this there's nothing in the in the Lisbon treaty which would necessarily disbar that and I think there is precedent for it I think that the luxembourgish um uh, the, the the eurogroup chair uh, there once one, once joined by a treasury minister uh, while well, he was also prime minister and so you know but like the eurogroup is kind of like a club really it's not really a, a formal eu institution and um, so you know its rules are kind of more flexible. I think where the where the this r- the this rubber really meets the road on this is the political reality in Ireland. And I think that in the first instance, Fianna Fáil has signalled that it won't accept uh, Pascal Donoghue maintaining his role in the Department of Finance. And then in a, a fairly strident intervention for uh, an even-tempered guy, um, Michael McGrath on Sunday said that he wouldn't accept any diminution of the role of Minister for Finance on Eurogroup and he wouldn't accept any um, associated kind of slicing up or de facto slicing up of the different roles within the de- Department of Finance. So, you know, for example, who would report back to the Dal on wider uh, economic European matters or the functioning of the Eurogroup or um, or the Euro in general. Like, he, he wants all those roles and those roles properly belong to the Minister for Finance. So I think things are building to a situation here where Fianna Fáil and Michael McGrath aren't going to back down. Um, it's now become visible and tangible in a way, partially thanks to uh, the Tanishta's intervention on, on the same programme last Sunday where he kind of suggested some kind of uh, fudge could be achieved. It, it's become a visible and political thing, and, and now I think it's one where, where somebody actually has to lose out. I don't think it's like a coalition-threatening coalition row or anything like that, far from it. Some, some they will They will they will achieve uh, an agreement here but someone i think won't achieve what they the outcome that they want and increasingly i'm i kind of suspect that might be pascal donohu um he can't stay on as minister of finance and it would seem that Fall have laid down the gauntlet and, and and said that you know the various different ways in which he might be maintained as eurogroup president they're not willing to entertain as well so it might it might end up with him effectively not being able to run again for president of the Euro of the Euro group and, and that obviously uh, is is an important and influential role and it would be uh, in a narrow domestic sense a political loss for him uh, for, uh, for Leverage and for Fine Alright we'll leave it there
1: let's see how that plays out. Jack Horgan-Jones and Cliff Taylor thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now when we return. I'll be talking to Owner Mara Walsh of the Irish Tourism Ministry Confederation about the hospitality sector's wish list from the budget. Back in a few moments.
0: At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the center of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com.
1: Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, the hospitality sector has been one of the worst hit by soaring energy costs, while at the same time still recovering from the impact of the pandemic on the sector. And a special 9% VAT rate is due to go at the end of February 2023. On Walsh of the Irish Tourism Ministry Confederation joined me for this segment, and I began by asking him what he expected from the budget for the sector.
3: Well, it's an important budget for Irish tourism. I mean, this summer has been pretty good for the tourism sector after the kind of Cataclysmic shock of, of COVID. Um, our latest figures, which is for the month of August, show we're 11% down on the same month pre-pandemic, which isn't bad at all, considering where we were. That's largely driven by pent-up demand, deferred bookings, accumulated savings, and, and so on. But really the concern is looking forward. There's a lot of concern about Q4, a lot of concern about 2023, softening demand, the global economy, embedded inflation, interest rates, uh, and so on. So, the The budget actually comes at a, at a critical time for us. Uh, we're hoping that the government um um maintain competitiveness and extend the VAT at nine percent level for the tourism hospitality sector. We also hope the government maintain tourism investment in the budget. The government were very supportive of the sector over the last two years. Um, invested heavily in things like product development and overseas marketing, we think that needs to be maintained because we think we're going to have to stimulate demand again. So there's, they're the two main measures that we hope, um, uh, Pascal Donahue and Michael McGrath bring to effect uh, next next week. There's also some some smaller issues about uh, trying to increase the car hire supply and ensure that air connectivity is 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 kept on on a on an upward trajectory because they're critical to to Irish tourism success.
1: Yeah, now on the VAT rate uh, issue, I mean, the the sense you get, just sort of reading the tea leaves, if you like, is that um, it's going to go back to 13.5%. I think it's 9% until, what, the end of next February, isn't that right? And it has been that way. It was that way uh, more or less throughout the uh, pandemic. And we had it, of course, uh, previously when we had the crash in 2008, it was introduced, uh, I think it was 2011 by the Fine Gael Labour Coalition government, and it was in place for a number of years. And then it was removed and brought back because of the pandemic. And the reason why it's probably going to go is because people are looking at hotel rates around the country and um, they're they're, they're pretty saucy. I stayed in Port Leash in a hotel um, last weekend. I was at a a family event, it was a four-star hotel. It was 350 euro for the room, which is quite expensive. Um, and, you know, reports of having to pay several hundred euro um, on any given night of the week for a hotel room in Dublin. So what would be the justification for keeping the 9% VAT rate?
3: Well, we've always argued that the, the VAT rate at 9% should be kept in place until the, the the tourism economy recovers to full pre-pandemic levels, which we don't anticipate is until about 2026 or so. It is a key recovery tool. You're right, Michael Noonan brought it back, uh, brought it in initially in 2011, and it was a big um, stimulus and it allowed the sector to add an awful lot of jobs and, and recover over over those sort of that that five year stretch, um, it went back up to thirteen and a half percent, as you say. Then came down back back to nine uh, during COVID, and we think that's the right rate. That the the tourism um, VAT rate across the rest of Europe is nine, ten, sometimes eight. So 9% is, is right. If we go up to 13.5%, we'll be uncompetitive versus our, our European peers. I know there's a lot of talk about uh, hotel prices and so on, but there's, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is, I suppose, that this tourism VAT rate is for the broad tourism and hospitality sector. So it's not specific to hotels. It's certainly not specific to Dublin hotels. Um, it, it applies equally to restaurants, to, to, to food and pubs, to tourist attractions and so on. So we have to make sure that we don't, if you like punish the masses for the sins of the few. There are certain, um, a small number, I would argue, um, a minority of tourism providers who have charged excessive prices, but that's not broadly reflective of the industry. And I think it's worth looking at sort of the independent data that's out there. There's a company called STR, which are the sort of the market leaders in terms of global hotel benchmarking. And the average room rate for a hotel in Dublin, for example, last month was 182 euro And if you compare that to London at 2.10 or Edinburgh at 2.42, you can see that Dublin is not, um, if you like, uh, off the charts. Now, it must be said that the the hotel rates in in Dublin in particular have gone up by about 16% compared to the same month pre-pandemic. But that's largely justifiable by the escalating costs and particularly the energy inflation costs. So going back to the VAT at 9, we think if it increases to 13.5%, it will depress recovery, it will damage demand it, and in fact, it will be inflationary. IBEC have come out recently arguing for the VAT at nine to be a permanent measure, as by the way, have PwC but ibEC 's analysis showed that that VAT going from nine to thirteen and a half percent will actually add 0.5% to the national inflation rate. So, you know, I think it's important for tourism to hang on to 9% until full recovery. But also, I just think in terms of the economic context that that, that Ireland is facing, I, I think adding fuel to the inflationary fire doesn't make any sense at all.
1: Yeah, and that's all very well. But if you look at booking.com um, for tonight, for uh, a bedroom for two people, the Davenport in Dublin city centre is charging €400, Euro, no breakfast, the Shelburne, is charging five hundred and seventy-four euro, uh, no breakfast. Paris Court, which is in Enniskerry, is not in Dublin. Four hundred and seventy euro, no breakfast. Um, Carton House, which is on the edge of Dublin beside Kildare, four hundred euro. The Pillar Hotel in Ashburn, in County Meath, two hundred and fifty euro. Um, the K Club, which is in Kildare, five hundred and fifty euro. They are giving uh, breakfast, and I, I could go on and on. And okay, it's it's only a snapshot. It's only one night. Um, it is mostly Dublin hotels, but when you see those kind of rates being offered it doesn't really justify um a special a special break on on the VAT rate and of course the VAT rate um applies uh, right across the industry it's not just they can't just sort of um make it applicable to country properties um let's say or or just to the uh restaurant trade uh, etc it has to be a broad sweep of a measure doesn't it but when you see those kind of hotel rates being charged in dublin it i mean you know the government is Having to give away a lot of money to help people through the cost of living crisis, they obviously need to bring in some income as well. And a lot of people would say, well, why why does the hotel industry, which is charging these kind of rates, have a special tax break uh, in terms of VAT? Well, we'd argue it's not a tax break, it's the right rate for tourism. So it,
3: it it shouldn't be seen as a reduced rate. It's actually the correct rate for tourism and hospitality services. Sure, particularly but when you it is a reduced rate, isn't it? It was 13.5%. It was 13.5%, but it was 9% nine, yeah. nine for about seven years before it was bumped back up to 13.5%. So our view, as I say, it's the same view as IBEC, is it should stay at 9% until full recovery is secured. Those prices that you're referring to, uh, Kieran, are are an example of the acute supply shortage in Dublin. I would, I would imagine that Dublin is 99% full tonight. When you, when, when we look at figures, um, um, in, in a few weeks time, we'll see that Dublin is completely booked out. So there's a huge, uh, supply, um, shortage in Dublin. Um, I, I do think there, and I'm not going to uh, name, name, uh, properties, but I do think certain hoteliers and certain tourism providers are charging excessive prices. I don't think that's reflective of the broader industry as as shown by, the, by the, the average daily rate that I quoted you a few minutes ago. Also, I don't think it puts the industry in a good light. And it certainly makes our challenge in fighting for the VAT at 9% more difficult. But I think in the broad and in the round, I think the value of Irish tourism is still strong um, it's, it's, it's particularly strong, I think, in regional Ireland. It's possibly less strong in, in Dublin. But remember, there is huge uh, cost inflation, which ultimately has to find its way in some shape or form to uh, the, the consumer's wallet. So I think 9% is it's an important recovery tool. I, I don't think we should obsess about it. There's an awful lot of other things that need to go right if Irish tourism is, is to see a full recovery. But it's an important recovery tool. And, and, and the one thing I always stress is that tourism is Ireland's largest indigenous industry and it's the biggest regional employer by far. So we have to be careful, we have to mind it, and we have to ensure that it, it, it continues
1: to grow and catch up on all the lost ground that it suffered during COVID. Yeah, mind you, uh, you say we don't have to obsess, with, you have five key budget asks in your pre-budget submission, and it's uh, it's number one there. So it's obviously yeah well the, it, the it's, it's the most industry. relevant to industry
3: it's, it's the most relevant to industry and, and business you know I'm, I'm not going to uh, lie about it i mean it, it's a sales tax so remember I, you know I talk about energy inflation and all the increased costs and so on remember the VAT goes on top of that and what's what's uh, in, in debate is that it, it, on february twenty eighth next year government are scheduled to increase that sales tax by fifty percent just at the time that the tourism economy is wobbling again because of global economic strains and inflation and so on. So we don't think it's, it's sensible for the government to do that. We think it's inflationary in its own right, but it will certainly retard the progress uh, of tourism. We do have a number of other asks, but VAT at 9 is probably the most important to industry.
1: Yeah. Um, mind you, uh, Pascal Dunhu um, did increase the VAT rate uh, previously pre-pandemic, didn't he? And, uh, you know, hospitality continued to do very well, didn't it?
3: Well, there's a whole variety of factors. That is only one element within the, if you like, the mix of the the tourism economy. But it's an important one. And, and, you know, we all talk about, and indeed Minister Donoghue talks about the importance of competitiveness. We're an open-traded economy. Tourism is largely an export industry. So 75% of the tourism economy is based on international visitation. And all those American visitors and French visitors and British visitors can go elsewhere. So we've got to be competitive with our peers. The one area that we are competitive in at the moment is the VAT at 9%. If you look across the board at labor costs or energy or the cost of credit, we're out of line with our EU peers. We're far more expensive than them. One of the few areas we are competitive in is VAT at nine, and I think it should stay that way.
1: Yeah, mind you, obviously people are coming to Dublin uh, in particular and uh, probably other parts of the country as well, let's face it. Um, and they're taken aback by some of the prices, not just of hotel rooms, but uh, the prices in restaurants as well. They have gone up um, significantly since, um, as, you know, since the lockdown restrictions were removed. And we're hearing reports of nearly a tenner in Temple Bar for a pint um that, you know, a, a steak in a restaurant and not a Michelin style restaurant, just an ordinary restaurant, maybe in pubs, sort of in the thirties or sometimes in the forties, uh that's expensive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think you know we we in the if you
3: like the Irish tourism um, industry and you know the, certainly certainly industry leaders are very mindful of value um, and you know there is a difference between price and value costs of business and the costs of of, of producing a, a restaurant meal or or a hotel bedroom or a visitor attraction have risen significantly and um, but I think uh, in in the round and on the whole. Irish tourism still represents value for money. And it's important that it continues to do so because back in the noughties, we actually lost our value proposition and it took us an awful long time to recover post the financial crash. So far, the evidence points to the fact that we've we've kept our value. Costs have gone up. But still, in terms of the overseas tourists and indeed uh, surveys for Ireland do within the domestic market, uh, surveys show that Irish tourism and hospitality still, despite some outliers, uh, represents good value for money. And I think we have to keep that because, um, you know, if we lose our value proposition, then it's going to be a really slow recovery for the
1: sector. Is nine quid for a pint of lager in a a pub in Temple Bar, is that good value too?
3: I don't think so. I wouldn't buy it. I, I wouldn't take you down for a pint there, Kieran, either. I think we'd go somewhere else. We'd go around the corner to another pub mm. that's sold a, well, uh, it's a that that's sold us. Let's face it, Temple Bar is kind a of a tourist
1: f- destination for a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, a yeah. lot of Americans but, but, yeah, come but he, here would pop down to Temple Bar. But equally, you know,
3: if you go to the Champs-Élysées or if you go to uh, Soho or something, you will pay top dollar for a drink. I mean, that is, that is reflective of, um, you know, um, any sort of uh, country uh, where, you know, there's a magnet for tourism and the hospitality. Prices are always, always north. I think, I think, you know, the consumer ultimately will respond. Thankfully, we've maintained our value. It's vital that we do. Remember, if the VAT goes up to 13.5%, it's going to absolutely uh, do nothing to support um, value or price reductions. It, it's a sales tax. It's going to go on, on to the cost of a hotel room. It's going to go on to the cost of a hotel, uh, a, a restaurant meal. So it's certainly not going to help our value proposition. It's, it's, a, it's a silly measure to to try and tackle some of the sort of value arguments that, that we hear about in, in the media. And also, I think this whole debate about price gouging and stuff, I do think it's, it's unfair. I do think it's ill-informed. I think if you look at the data and the facts... Ireland still uh, has good value for money, albeit prices are rising. But that's largely reflective of escalating costs.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you said yourself earlier in this interview that uh, some of the prices being charged are too high. Yeah, I'll say it again. I think I
3: think there's a small minority of. Uh, of and remember, you know, n- neither I nor you nor any industry body can set prices. So you know, we, you have to rely on on business owners and businesses. And I do think there's a small uh, minority of tourism providers. Who are charging excessive prices and um, i don't think that's reflective of the industry and i certainly don't think it puts the industry in a good light but that is the minority i think the vast majority of of tourism businesses and remember according to the cro there's twenty thousand tourism and hospitality businesses up and down the length and breadth of the country the vast majority are, are smes the vast majority are labor intensive with modest profit margins i think the vast majority of those offer good value. Remember, if you look at the August figures, uh, we had a million international visitors in the country uh, during August. They weren't all going down to their hotel bedroom, uh, the hotel lobby the, the morning after saying that they had really bad value. The, the majority of those thought the Irish tourism experience was positive and, and, and they, they thought even though prices have risen, it still represented a good value. But listen, we're very mindful of that. It has to remain the case. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, they're, they're, this year is very unusual in a way. You've pent up demand, you've got deferred bookings. Demand has absolutely surged at the very time that supply has been constrained. I think it's going to become on a more even
1: keel in, in future months, which I think is going to help the value proposition. So, Owen, I know you want to keep the 9% uh, fat rate, but what do you think the chances of keeping it are? Because the mood music is that it's going to go, um, it's going to increase to 13.5% from um, the beginning yeah, of March Yeah,
3: listen, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm not any better at reading the political tea leaves uh, as anyone else. I know I know there's a lot of discussion in, in the media about it and a lot of discussion within within the political classes. We're lobbying heavily, obviously, for the 9% to be kept in place until the full recovery uh, of the sector. We'll find out um, on, on Budget Day. It's due to be kept in place until February 28th, which is a strange... Most of the taxation measures are for a calendar year, so it's a strange sort of cliff edge... Um, but we would argue that it needs to be kept in place at least for the calendar year 2023, if not for
1: full recovery. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, energy obviously is a, another big issue um, for the budget, both for um, householders and for businesses. What would you like to see? What do you think the government could or should do for um, businesses in the hospitality sector um, to help with the uh, soaring cost of energy? well I, I
3: I kind of think whatever the government does for tourism and hospitality it will probably be you know it, it, then the, the measure will be will be economy wide so I think, just think it 's important that tourism and hospitality businesses are included within that package i mean it's it, undoubtedly uh, uh, hotels restaurants vintners, and so on uh, are very heavy energy users so they 've you know been pretty much pretty shocked by the energy bills that are landing on their on their their, their mats and that, that they're they 're wrestling with you know you hear of of doubling, tripling of, of, of energy bills, uh, which is really scary. Um, I think some support would be needed from the government. All the mood music at the moment is that the government are going to put in place an energy support package uh, for SMEs. That's important. Um, what that is, we don't know, but it's important that, that tourism and hospitality businesses are included. I know the likes of the UK government have put in a cap, but that kind of sounds like a blank check. I think here is probably going to be a bit more um, a tactical, a bit more measured um, and I think some some element of offsetting you know if if you're able to prove that energy bills have doubled or tripled or are a certain percentage of your of of your of your costs I think some measure of of, of support whether it's a rebate or a credit um or indeed back to the back to the, the what they did during covid where they they kind of waived um commercial rates for a period of time some sort of measure to help offset some of the costs because the danger is that when a business is, is a very heavy consumer of energy, if those energy bills are, are, are exponentially grow, going up, it, it, it either means you have to pass pass it on to the consumer, which which threatens, uh, obviously, um, damaging demand, or you try and absorb it to the bottom line, which puts a real pressure on companies' um, and bottom lines. And, you know, going back to COVID, there was two years where there was no international tourists in the country. And remember, international tourism was the mainstay of Irish tourism. So we estimate that about €12 billion Euro was lost to the tourism economy over those two years. So businesses have very vulnerable balance sheets at the moment. So even though we're talking about a strong summer um, and certainly an increase in, in, in revenue for businesses, um, the balance sheets are still very vulnerable. And, and, you know, things like an energy support package will be needed if we're to navigate our, our way through this crisis.
1: Yeah, sure. And just finally, Owen, how is the year as a whole shaping up um, compared to pre-pandemic times compared to, to 2019?
3: Well, we, we, we kind of recently, if you like, recal- recalibrated our scenarios. 2019 was, was the peak. It was the, the, the highest level of inbound tourism that, that we ever had. There was just shy of 10 million international tourists. We're probably going to finish at around 7.5 million international tourists this year, which is really encouraging, um, particularly considering Omicron kind of wiped out January, February and, and, and part of March. And indeed, there were still quite a lot of, of restrictions. If you recall, there were still restrictions for U.S. travelers who had to test uh, before before they went home, that was finally lifted in June. So I think recovery has been much stronger this year. And um, the the disappointing thing is, I suppose we're not out of the woods insofar as because of inflation, because of economic woes, possibly some of our key source markets tipping into a recession. We, we we think there's going to be a dip next year. So we think we're going to probably lose about 4% um, next year before then slowly recovering to pre-pandemic levels. But it's 2027 before we get back to, to where we were. So it's a, it's a long, hard slog, if you like. Industry needs to be offer a really good product at the right price and maintain value and exceed and match customer expectations. But equally, the full recovery of the sector has to be enabled by government. So back to budget next week, it is important for the sector. And we can't assume that, you know, if you like, one swallow makes a summer. And just because we've had a few strong months and demand has been better than anticipated, Irish tourism is, is, is out of the woods. There's, there's a really tricky period ahead, particularly in the next 12 months. So we hope the pro-tourism policies by the government uh, continue. And I, and I should say that government were very supportive of the tourism and hospitality sector during the crash in terms of EWSS and CRSS and, 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 and business continuity grants. So, you know, I, I, what we're saying is they need, they need to stay the course, and, and we need that support to continue, starting with budget next week.
1: Okay, Owen O'Mara Walsh, we'll leave it there.
3: Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran.
1: Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jack Horgan-Jones, Cliff Taylor, and Owen Mara Walsh. The show was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, remember you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.